Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every Monday with a new story about your world. Today's guest is Cameron Chong, an immigration attorney who will give us an overview of the process to become a U.S. citizen. He will talk about issues the LGBTQ community deals with when it comes to naturalization. I want to thank all of you following Jesse Garcia's show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about the show, visit jessegarciashow.com. Attention LGBTQ permanent residents. Ready to become a U.S. citizen? My community organization, League of United Latin American Citizens Council 11125, also known as LULAC Lambda, is hosting citizenship workshops with immigration lawyer Cameron Chong. These sessions will help green card holders learn about the process to become a citizen, and Cameron will answer questions specific to the LGBTQ community. Come get your free legal advice. We have scheduled two free sessions on Saturday, June 16th at 10 a.m. and Tuesday, June 19th at 7 p.m. Both sessions will be held at George Washington University's Marvin Center, Room 301. The center is located at 821st Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. RSVP today at lulaclambda at gmail.com. That's L-U-L-A-C-L-A-M-B-D-A at gmail.com. Sessions will be held in English and will have Spanish translation available. For more information, visit lulaclambda.org. And here's your weekly news update. American television history was made this past Sunday evening. FX Network debuted dance musical drama Pose, which features the largest cast of transgender actors in a regular series, as well as the largest recurring cast of LGBTQ actors ever for a scripted series. Pose is set in the 1980s New York City scene, showcasing the lives of transgender and queer people of color. With a special emphasis on drag ball culture, the rise of 80s greed, and the downtown social and literary scene. The transgender cast includes MJ Rodriguez, Dominique Jackson, India Moore, Haley Sahar, and Angelica Ross, with co stars Evan Peters, Kate Mara, James Vanderbeek, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. All of this is made possible by creator Ryan Murphy, who brought you American Horror Story and Glee, and executive producer Janet Mock, a well-known transgender activist and author. I tuned in on Sunday, and the show is everything, almost too much. So many things are pumped into one episode, you want to go in deeper into all the characters being introduced. But be patient. There are eight episodes this season. I especially love that the stories go beyond the ballroom and into their backstories. Stories we never get to see on network TV. And if we do, they are confined to just supporting roles on crime victim shows like CSI. You're going to go to, you're going to get to experience the daily struggles with poverty, racism, classism, homophobia, transphobia, and yes, AIDS. There's a lot to unpack, but I promise the characters are so good you'll want to get invested. I'm rooting for several of them, including more screen time for the evil house mother, Electra Abundance, who is the nemesis of new house mother, Blanca. 
played beautifully by MJ Rodriguez. I'm biased. I grew up during that time in the 80s, but in a world away in rural South Texas. I caught a glimpse of that world in MTV and eventually scenes from Paris is Burning. The dance and house music of the 80s, Pose uses, takes me back to the clubs I ended up in when I came out. It makes me feel right at home. For some LGBTQ people, these stories that are being played out in these episodes will hit too close to home. Pose airs Sunday at 9pm Eastern Time on FX. And for those in the D.C. area who would like to experience an actual ball live and uncensored, stop by Saturday, June 16th at Cobalt, located at 1639 R Street Northwest from 4 to 7 p.m. Come cheer on local aspiring talent who will be walking the runway for trophies such as Butch Queen Realness, Sexy Siren, Butch Queen Face, Fam Pop, and more. The $7 entry fee will benefit the National Black Justice Coalition and local organizations benefiting LGBTQ youth, SMILE, and Cross the Street. An estimated 13.2 million lawful permanent residents, also known as green card holders, live in the United States, according to the latest Department of Homeland Security statistics available, and 8.9 million of them are eligible to become U.S. citizens. 30% of that population that's able to naturalize comes from Mexico alone. Progressive groups are working to help many of these residents take that final step especially in California, Texas, New York, and Florida, which would see a substantial increase in new voters, since together these four states are home to nearly 60% of green card holders. One person volunteering his time to explain the long and sometimes stressful process is immigration attorney Cameron Chong. He founded a law firm specializing on non-immigrant visas, green cards, family-based immigration, and asylum and removal cases. Today, he comes on the show to explain the basics of becoming a U.S. citizen and offers helpful hints to help demystify the process so LGBTQ green card holders can confidently apply for their citizenship and take on the rights and privileges that come with it. I want to welcome to the show Cameron Chong, an immigration attorney here in the D.C. area who's coming on the show today to talk about becoming a U.S. citizen. Cameron, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, First of all, thank you for having me today. Um, This is my first podcast interview, so I'm excited. Thank you. Um, So my name is Cameron Chong. I am a solo practitioner with Chong Immigration Law. We're a full-service immigration law firm, kind of handle everything from deportation and asylum all the way to actors, athletes, international researchers, kind of everything. Um, so yeah, we've, we've been in DC for about a year and a half now, uh, but I've been practicing immigration exclusively for the last five years. And you're from the area cause you went to GW, correct? Yes. I originally grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Um, but I went to GW for undergrad, American for law school. And then I lived in Miami for three years with my husband <laughs> and we, uh, yeah, we were there for a while for his residency, and then I moved back here. 
So here we are now. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to be talking about becoming a U.S. citizen. So this pertains to green card holders that are ready to take the next step to become a U.S. citizen. Uh, so what has changed for green card holders in the last couple of years? Have any of the rules, fees, um, processes changed? Sure. I mean, uh, by and large, under the current administration, the naturalization process itself has stayed the same. Um, the biggest things that we're seeing now, there's an increased fee. Um, so now it's $725 versus $680. Um, the other kind of administrative issue for attorneys is the physical form itself, um, the N-400 form, is now 20 pages long as opposed to 12 pages long. And a lot of that is just they're really honing in on all these specific questions that you can potentially catch someone on. so, so for example, it used to be like, oh, have you ever been involved in hijacking, kidnapping, sabotage, you know, trying to overthrow the government as one question. And now it's, have you ever been involved in hijacking? Have you ever been involved in sabotage? Have you ever been involved in kidnapping? And so it's just, they're really trying to catch anyone on kind of any issue. Um, the other big change that we're seeing is just processing time. So I would say up to about... 2016 you were looking at about six months to 12 months for from filing to a decision in your citizenship case um i just looked it up last night for the dc area it's between 10 and 19 months now so if you want to become a u.s citizen you're not going to be able to vote in these november elections but you'll be ready to go for 2020 exactly so as soon as you can get started the the better um so a lot of that is just dependent on um, FBI background checks. Um, and they're really, really honing in on, you know, kind of digging through your old files. Um, Even social media, correct? Social media to an extent. Um, less so with the citizenship applications, more with green card applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest issue now is for, for people who've had their green card for a long time. So... In the mid-2000s is when they switched over to an electronic fingerprinting system. So there's tens of thousands of people who have green cards who had paper fingerprints that don't match up with current files, and so it's just taking a really long time to do those. Um, And the other thing is, with every citizenship application, this is your last opportunity from immigration's perspective to review everything, to try and catch whatever they can. So top-down, Department of Homeland Security is really digging into everyone as much as they can. Um, and one other thing that I've I've known to be a change, not in the naturalization process, which is the, the citizenship process itself, but for acquired citizenship for children. So it used to be that if you had a, a parent who was a U.S. citizen um, who spent at least one year physically in the U.S., then you could get citizenship automatically at birth. Um, that has since changed as of, I want to say, like January of this year, where now it's your American citizen parent has to have at least five years physical presence in the U.S., and at least two of those years have to be after the age of 14. So there, you know, it you can extrapolate whatever kind of insidious ideas you want from it, but, you know, it really seems to be targeting people whose parents 
brought, you know, came over pregnant, gave birth, lived in the U.S. for a little bit, got their children U.S. citizenship, returned to their home country, you know, kind of in the hopes that you would have, you know, a future, you know, option. But now it's they really want that physical presence. So, Cameron, what is the current eligibility for green card holders to become U.S. citizens? Sure. So first, you have to be over the age of 18. Um, and second, you have to be a green card holder. Now, with that, you have to hold your green card for a certain number of years. Generally speaking, it's five years. Um, but if you got your green card through marriage to a U.S. citizen um, and you're still married, it's only three years. So after that period of time, you can apply for citizenship. The other qualification is you have to be physically present in the U.S. Um, for the five-year green card holders, you have to be here for at least 30 months within that five-year period. Or for the three-year green card, it's 18 months within that three-year time period. Um, and then there is, it's it's weird, and I have never actually run into a problem with it, but technically you have to be physically present in the same USCIS district prior to applying. So, for example, if you had just moved to D.C. from New York, you have to wait three months before you can apply. And I think it's just a weird administrative thing, but it's a requirement technically. Um, and finally, the, the one that usually is the biggest issue for people or the thing that scares the most is the good moral character um, qualification. So with that... That's pretty vague. I mean, It, it is very vague. And it's more related to what you haven't done. No. How do I rephrase this? It's not exemplary character. You don't have to be a saint. But there are certain things that would take away good moral character. So that would be like past criminal convictions, drug issues. Um, it generally overlaps with the same deportation concerns that you would be looking at. Um, other things are like not filing your taxes, not paying your child support or your alimony. Um, and so y you can always overcome kind of good moral character issues and it only goes back as far as that five or three year period. Okay. So if you have an old conviction, something like that, you're probably okay. Um, but that's usually the thing that scares a lot of people, particularly asylum seekers um, or people who obtained their green card through asylum. Because, you know, you go through a lot of things to try and get here. Yeah. There can be past arrests, things like that. Those can be excused um, and, and also demonstrating some sort of rehabilitation, connections to the community, you know, all of that can give you, quote unquote, good moral character in the eyes of USCIS. Will um, immigration officials look into your political activity? Because some of the uh, immigrants that I know are very politically active and they protest because they've been trying to change the conversation that's been having, uh, that's been taking over the United States after an administration has been coming at them on a daily basis. So will they look at political um, action on behalf of these immigrants before they, would that, would that count against them? 
So strictly speaking, any sort of political activism won't count against you. But, you know, if, if you're involved in an altercation with the police, if you're involved in an assault, if, you know, you're resisting arrest, something like that, those types of criminal charges that can be associated with political activism, that can count against you. But strictly expressing your political opinion, your um, distaste, let's say, for the administration shouldn't impact your ability to to demonstrate good moral character or to receive your your naturalization um that being said you know you are going to be interacting with a government official don't give lip don't give you know don't give them a hard be respectful of the process yes because even if you don't respect the current administration's stance on immigration or you know how they're processing things you still have to respect the institution that you are able to become a U.S. citizen through this process. And you have to give that idea a certain level of deference and a certain level of respect. And that's usually what I tell clients. Now, is the actual test really difficult? Like, Do you recommend people that are not familiar with American history to sign up for a course, a civics lesson? Because it's how long and how difficult? So this is this is the other thing that I usually have people get scared about is the the actual test for uh, your naturalization. So, in reality, it's two tests. There's an English test and there's a civics test. The English test is is super easy. Um, unless you meet certain exemptions, you will have to conduct your interview in English. If you can handle that, you can certainly handle the English test. Um, it's basically a reading writing listening test where they'll say I'm going to say a sentence to you write it down and it's you know the brown fox jumps over the river kind of thing Mm -hmm. Um, so the exemptions for that are if you're over the age of 50 and you've had your green card for at least 20 years you get to skip the English test Um, same thing if you're over 55 and have had it for 15 years also get to skip and you can do it in your native language but everyone else it's a fairly straightforward process. The civics exam, you know, you often hear people, Americans really say like, oh, immigrants need to know more about how our government works than we do, which is kind of true, but it's it's a set of 100 questions. You get them ahead of time. They're all, not multiple choice, but there are like three or four accepted answers for each question. They tell you exactly how to say it. And there are a ton of resources for free that are available to help you study for it. So there's, um, you know, USCIS itself puts out flashcards. They put out study guides. There are YouTube videos if you're like more of like a, a listening oral kind of person, podcasts about it. You know, there's a ton of free material that is available to do it. Um, of the 100 questions, you'll be asked 10 and you only have to get six right. So it isn't it isn't very hard. And if you study a little bit, it really is fairly straightforward. Um, How many times can you take it? Sure. (laughs) So you get you get the opportunity at the interview. Um, If you fail either portion. So let me step back. The way the interview works is first, they'll go through all of your eligibility. They'll do all of you know, review of the form, make sure that there's nothing else that would prohibit you from getting your green card or your citizenship. Then they give you the English and the civics exam. 
if you fail either part, they'll give you another chance 60 to 90 days down the road, and you only have to retake the part that you fail. So if you miss a civics question, you know, 60 to 90 days, you get to come back, you get to try it again. Um, so you get two shots, basically. And um, if you do have some sort of cognitive disability, you can also get a waiver for the civics exam. Um, that, you know, you do need like doctor's documentation and something like that, but it's not necessarily a requirement if you have, you know, a significant learning disability, a mental handicap, something like that. Overall, what are some of the issues that LGBTQ citizens, residents, permanent residents that want to become citizens, what are some of the common issues that you've come across with? Sure. So like I said, the... Generally speaking, citizenship, your N-400 application is the last opportunity for USCIS and immigration to review your entire case file. So that applies to everyone. But specifically with LGBTQ clients, you know, it they're going to go through old asylum claims. If you got your green card through marriage, through marriage to an opposite gender person, that'll come up. So, uh, you know... One, you may have to go through some reliving of trauma related to your asylum claim. Um, if you're in removal during that time, same thing. They're going to go through it again. Uh, if you were married to a person of the opposite gender, you know, and that's how you obtained your green card, there will likely be questions about it. And, you know, certainly people come out later. There are a lot of cultural reasons why someone may or may not, um, you know, be out as gay or lesbian, you know, until later in life, or they may be bisexual, you don't know, like there are many different ways, but you need to be prepared to have that questioned and you need to be prepared for them to see if there's fraud. Um, so that's something to consider. The other issue that I've come across is if you obtained your green card prior to 2010 and you were HIV positive, then you needed to obtain a waiver back in the day to to come in and get your green card that's changed since then but there will be a bunch of you know marks on your application basically that said you had to apply for a lot of waivers so you will likely have to discuss your hiv status again so you know reliving and going through all of that is is something that would happen excuse me so you know with lgbtq clients you know i say that that's be prepared. You know, it, it may be hard, but you have to do it in order to, to achieve this. And transgender? Sure. The other issue, and this is less of a uh, naturalization specific issue, but if you are transgender and you haven't gone through the name and gender change, like legally, it can be a huge pain down the road if you don't change it before applying for your naturalization. Um, basically, again, this is your last opportunity to get all of your paperwork updated. So I recommend to transgender clients all the time, if you haven't legally changed your name or your gender in the US, now's the time to do it. Because otherwise, you're going to have to change your social security number, you're going to have to change your, ta you know, everything related to your immigration. And it's just a huge, huge problem. So it's just a lot easier if you can get everything done ahead of time. Okay, at what point do people with complicated cases, mm -hmm. should they get a lawyer? And 
what should be what type of um accreditation because the latino community has been plagued by a lot of people who want to scam them so what accreditation should they be looking for and where do you recommend they look sure so i would say that anyone thinking of applying for citizenship should have an attorney at least once review it with them in person. Even if they have a clean record, even if they have never traveled outside of the US, it is still a good idea to have an attorney look over it. And there are a ton of like nonprofit organizations, um, different workshop days, things like that, where you'll have qualified licensed attorneys who can look through all of your paperwork and make sure that you know all of your questions are properly marked, that you understand exactly what each question is asking. Because a lot of times, and especially now with this longer form, the questions can be worded in kind of a complicated way that a lawyer will understand, oh, they're alluding to this issue or this issue. But you as you know, a lay person may not understand that like saying, have you ever claimed to be a US citizen you know, on any form? You know, oh, well, once I, I did it, you know, for for this, that, or the next thing. Well, that can be a huge issue. Um, so you want to be able to talk about it with an attorney. Um, one of the organizations that I do want to flag is um, Ya Es Hora. It's like, it's based in California, but they have links to pretty much every... Um, every state, you know, different organizations that will help people review their citizenship applications. Now, if it's complicated, they'll refer you out to a, you know, an, another private attorney, but that will give you someone and a set of attorney's eyes to look at it. Um, in terms of when you should get an attorney, private attorney, aside from just reviewing it, um, the biggest red flags for me are the issue of green card abandonment, which is if you've spent a lot of time outside of the US while on your green card, you may have inadvertently abandoned your, your lawful permanent residence and not even know it. So that can be an issue you know, when it comes time for citizenship. Um, if you have a criminal record of any kind, have an attorney look at it. Um, driving issues, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Really, if it's if it's like parking tickets, if it's speeding tickets, it's not a problem. But if you have a bunch of DUIs, if you have reckless driving issues, those can go towards your good moral character because there is, in the law, if you're a habitual drunkard, which is a really antiquated phrase, um, you can be prohibited from getting your green card or your citizenship. So that's something to bring up with an attorney, um, anything drug related. Even if it's not an arrest or a conviction, if you've ever gone to rehab, if you, you know, if that's on the record somewhere, that can be problematic for your, your eventual um, citizenship. Again, it only goes back that five or three year period, but it's still something that needs to be addressed. Um, public charge or public benefits if if you or someone in your family has received food stamps medicaid social security disability anything like that it may impact your eligibility for citizenship or at least impact when you can apply um and finally taxes this is like the the 
biggest thing for me. Pay them. <laughs> Pay your taxes and file your taxes. You're supposed to file a tax return every year that you have your green card. And a lot of times with lower income, you know, green card holders, they're like, oh, I didn't make enough money. I don't have to file my taxes. Yeah, you got to file something. Even if it says you made nothing, you got to file it. So a lot of times... You got to have a paper trail. Yes, absolutely. Um, so a lot of times that'll be a delay for clients is you got to go to an accountant. You got to file back taxes, you know, for the last 10, 15 years. And that's... You got to do it. And that's something that they'll definitely look into. Well... Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all this knowledge. You and I are going to actually be having an immigration workshop for green card holders who want to become U.S. citizens in June. For those needing free legal advice, join us Saturday, June 16th at 10 a.m. or Tuesday, June 19th at 7 p.m. at George Washington University in the Marvin Center, room 301, located at 800 21st Street Northwest, Washington, D.C., the one-hour class is free and will be translated into Spanish. Cameron, if people want to contact you directly, where can they reach you? Sure. So you can look for us online. It's www.immigratedc.com. That's I-M-M-I-G-R-A-T-E-D-C.com. Um, you can email me directly. It's Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at ImmigrateDC.com. And our phone number is 202-798-4339. We're available pretty much any day during the week. Give us a call. And we're happy to help. Thank you so much, Cameron. Thank you.